0: We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Rev. Paul John Roach.
1: So hello and welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. And today I talk with Randy Kritkowski about his new book about awakening to Native American spirituality and the ways of our ancestors. It's entitled Without Reservation. And Randy is an enrolled tribal member in the, of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. Um, he's also the founder of Ecologia, Gelosia, um, an international environmental organization that works on the planet's more extreme challenges, as if there aren't enough as it is, but yeah, I guess they get more extreme. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, he's also served as a, a professor at Keystone College, a research scholar, at Middlebury College, as well as um, in various universities in Europe, including in Hungary and in Sweden. So it's a pleasure to welcome Randy Krakowski to today's show. Welcome. Glad you're with us.
2: Bonjour, or greetings, as we say in Potawatomi.
1: There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So the book is is, uh, part memoir, part uh, personal spiritual journey, part inspirational text, uh, part philosophy and part history. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of things, isn't it? And of course, it's exceptionally well written, which you'd expect from a, a professor. Uh, it covers a lot of ground. Um, so what did you hope to achieve? What are you hoping to achieve with this book? What's, what's its foundation?
2: The, the initial goal in writing was just in the middle of the night to clarify my own thoughts and record wondrous things that were happening that I couldn't completely get my head around. Right I, as it evolved and I told people what I was doing you know their eyes widened and I suddenly found that their body posture changed and they felt relaxed and it gave them permission to talk about similar experiences they were having and that's when I decided to go from a you know private diary to a a public document a published book so that I could give people permission to experience what I had been experiencing, even if they're not Native American. So the answer to your question is, I think the goal of my book is to get people to take down the barriers and gates to a more spiritually rich life. And
1: there's a a lovely image, isn't there? I've lost it now. Here it is on uh, page three um, of the book, and it's an image from Guilford Cathedral in... uh, in Great Britain, and uh, it's of Alice through the Looking Glass. It's a sculpture, um, and uh, there she is, you know, halfway through, right? She's still on one side, but her face and part of her body has gone through to the next, and, and it's that, that sort of liminal space, you know, between one world and the other that we're, we're talking about, isn't it, the, the fact that the, it, interpen- it interpenetrates, if you like, the, the two worlds that are happening at the same time, um uh, but so often we settle for, you know, three-dimensional reality and, and your awakening, perhaps I'm putting words into your mouth, but your awakening is in, into that awareness that you know it it's the both are existent, that they interpenetrate each other.
2: Beautifully, beautifully said. I, I wish I could have said it that clearly. Um there, there is an added dimension of the sculpture, which is, you know, it's frozen, of course. It's not an animate sculpture. Mm-hmm. And what I like is that, for me, it depicts um, the, the dilemma we sometimes have when we're living simultaneously in both realms, you know, a right. deeply spiritual realm and this three-dimensional, four-dimensional material world. And they, they challenge, interrogate, one another and for some people that means you quickly back out of the spiritual realm because it's spooky for other people like me i find the hard questions that each asks of the other to be a really rich part of the experience
1: mm-hmm. you mentioned in the book that uh, you know in certain circles even the word spirit is uh you know, likened to sort of some kind of mumbo jumbo, you know, let's not go there. Right. It's, it's, it's not a rigorous term, you know, in intellectual circles, but, you know, for people like me who have spent my life in the religious circles, unity as a minister, whatever, you know, it's foundational to talk about spirit. Um, and it doesn't have that sense of being, you know, something silly. It's, it's foundational in the sense that it's, um, it's a way to describe uh, a, a living reality, something something that um, uh, is fuzzy. If you, uh, it has a, uh, it's it's animate, as you put it in the book. It, it it's um, filled with a soul or an energy, right? That uh, that 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 informs everything. So it's it's very valuable in that in that way.
2: It, it's it's a wondrous experience to engage that other reality. But, you know, as I try to make clear in the book, and I still experience this daily, it is sometimes wondrous and perplexing, and it's occasionally frightening. Um, right. There were more than, more than a few times when I would, in the middle of the night, ask myself if I were hallucinating or, you know, growing old and slipping into dementia and that's when I began to write elders in my tribe describing exactly what had happened with the visitation of an owl or kukuoku, you know, or the koi wolf. And then they began to confirm that what I was hearing, seeing, experiencing actually made perfect sense given what was happening around me from the perspective of my tribal heritage. And that was profoundly comfortable and still is.
1: You talk about uh, looking different from your typical Native American, you know, in the, in the book that you you um, you, you have other um, background as well, you in, know, in, in, from your uh, European origins as well, and of course the um, the, the the famous one recently is this one percent, uh, you know, Indian blood in, in one of our political leaders, Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren, and the, and the fact that. Uh, you know she's been mocked for that, right? Um, but you, you you talk about that because the, you know it's you you have a, a, a sort of a double entendre meaning to the title of the book without reservation. Um, you know, one one meaning being you know you're not on the reservation, you're not you're not. But then most Native Americans are not, right? I mean, seventy percent are in urban settings Correct. or whatever. Yeah. So how, talk about the comfortability of that and how you how um, you know, people who uh, have more full blood, if you like, respond to to those that are less so? And how does that work?
2: Well, men, many of the Native Americans that I know well, including the Native Americans here in Vermont, the, the Abenaki, um, had to travel a, a really, really treacherous route um, during the early years of the last century, the early 20th century, because in Vermont, which is, you know, notoriously, um, you know, the, one of the whitest states in the United States, the um, the wise men in our legislature in the 1920s and 30s decided that there were too darn many French Canadian Catholics and too many Indians, so they began a program of forced sterilization in a school <laughs> just down the road where I'm sitting. And as a result, the Abenaki tore up any documents they had in their families that would link them to their Indian heritage. It was positively dangerous. So I really empathize with, and people here in Vermont empathize with what Elizabeth Warren stepped into the hornet's nest, because people all over the United States, including the Cherokee, who were famously Death March, Trail of Tears, from their homelands to the West, had every reason... To bury documents. And as a result, we have a huge part of our population that has a family oral history saying we're part Indian, but they can't prove it. <laughs> so legally, what happens in the United States is every tribe writes its own rules. For my tribe, it has nothing to do with blood quantum, you know, what percentage Indian I am. It's simply a matter of being enrolled officially on something the Bureau of Indian Affairs created at the end of the 19th century. But that leaves many of us trapped. And since we tend to racialize so much in our society, we judge people on how they look. So an Italian actor, like the famous person who did the um, Crying Indian um, commercial, who happens to be a Sicilian-Italian, can pass himself off as a Native American actor and I, who am legally a Native American, if I stand in front of a crowd, I know the first thing they're going to be whispering to one another is, he doesn't look like an Indian. He looks like a Scandinavian. <laughs> so you know, th- this raises the question, which I must have gone over the question a hundred times in my own mind and then into my Consciousness popped the image of the wonderful monarch butterflies that I visited when I was in California doing some work for Middlebury College. And I remembered that they migrate south and five generations later, they know how to find their way home to the exact same grove. And we now understand from quantum physics and some other studies of human cognition that living beings encode information not just in their neural systems and in the brain, but in DNA and RNA. So we we inherit memories. And the number of generations from their origins that monarch butterflies are is the same number of generations I am from my pure Indian blood ancestors. So I feel like I have a, a scientific basis if I need it. For saying that ancestral memories and sensitivities persist.
1: Yeah, I like that. Thank you. That that uh, that clarifies that that important point. You know, tangentially, you know, um, I remember my my parents telling me about uh, days in Wales where I grew up. You know, back in the 19th century, where uh, people uh, tried to eradicate the, the Welsh language and. Um, systematically the English did that and uh, there's something called the Welsh knot, you know, and you, you had a, a piece of wood that if you were caught uh, in school, if you were caught using the Welsh language, you, you had to hold this piece of wood and uh, whoever had the piece of the wood at the end of the day, because each time somebody used the Welsh language it was passed on and they got thrashed, you know, at the end of the day, so it was, it was a wonderful uh, means of eradicating the Welsh language, I guess uh, in, in a very cruel way. Um, But, you know, that's that's in a, you know, in a, quote, white culture, you know, but the dominant system was the English and they were, you know, dominating the Celts. So, um, you know, this this, unfortunately, this tendency is is not just limited to Native Americans. Right. It it was a the domination system, the colonial domination system was worldwide. and, And unfortunately, I think we still see it today right it, it's it's certainly not something of the past right um and you you reference you know the pipeline the dakota pipeline and 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 some of the atrocities that have been committed you know by uh, the security forces you know in in recent times in, in in the last year or so so this is very much alive
2: yes the um the, the mechanism you mentioned of stripping people's identity um, and their language, I've experienced around the world. We worked in the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union, and everyone mm-hmm. there was considered to be homo sovieticus. And they famously tried to get rid of um, you know, ethnic variations you know, in the yeah. country. And we've done the same thing in China. And look what they're doing with the Uyghurs. You know, my grandfather went to three different Indian schools you know, for his entire youth. And, you know, this This is where the hair was cut off, the Indian name was taken away. And, you know, famously, the founder of the school said, we killed the Indian to save the boy. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is It is partly a historical and po- social political process. But what I, I keep returning to is also how spiritually deadening it is. and I keep confronting within my own Native American um, communities how much we've internalized so much from white society and still struggle to recover our own heritage and our own openness and willingness to be spiritual and live, if not constantly, at least frequently, in that animate universe that you you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, because that's really the key to understanding Native American spirituality and the beauty that I think so many people long for now when they're cooped up in their houses and are trying to reconnect with nature, but don't know how to do it.
1: Right. Um, and that's huge. Uh, I've just become a master naturalist in, in my area here and, uh, yeah, and i thoroughly enjoyed going through the the training. I've always loved nature and been connected to, to Mother Nature. But um, it is amazing, you know, as, as you study uh, the the lack of interest that m- many people have towards the the, the natural world. You know, that we're we're so accustomed to our built environment, and we and we approach nature as sort of a picturesque backdrop or a so, something you know that's really peripheral to to the center of our lives and. And really, that's going to have to shift, I think, if we're if we're going to survive as a as, as a being beings on this planet, right? Because um, we we are integrally involved with nature, whether we whether we remember that truth truth or not. The beautiful image that I love about native spirituality, uh, particularly, is the circle. You know that. Um, uh, and, and many of the uh, Native American nations talk about the, the hoop of the world or the or Turtle Island. You know, it's always in this idea of circles and spirals, whatever. And, and you've got the similar image right in, in the earlier part of your book where you, you talk about ways of approaching the, the numinous or the, the, the spiritual in things. Um, and it it reminded me of the Wheel of Life. You know, last week we had a show on the Wheel of the Year, which, again, is the sort of Celtic understanding of that, which is very similar to native spirituality. But uh, you you outline various approaches, right? Visions and connections, observations, reflections, and storytelling. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Because those are sort of ways in, right? Ways to enter into this holism that you're talking about.
2: Yes, as as I referred to it, um, you know, ways of of knowing, and I tr- I tried to keep it, you know, simple and not too overwhelmingly philosophical and epistemological, which would turn people off rather quickly. Right, right. But the you know the Native American medicine wheel is is a garden divided into four quadrants pointing you know north, south, east, and west, and for some Native American traditions, it also points in two additional directions, up and down. Um, and I, I find that, that that metaphor, which I use to talk about visitations, which you know are one of the four ways of knowing, the direct connections with flora and fauna, and conversations with an owl, um, you know, that is complemented by the kind of reflective thinking that we're doing right now in this discussion, which is stepping back and saying, okay, I had an experience. What does it mean? How do I? frame this in terms of my other understandings. And then there's storytelling, um, you know, which is what I do in the book where you try to encapsulate what you know. So the information, the knowledge can be provided to an accessible to someone else. And then also there's just mere observation. You know, it's not an intimate direct connection with nature It's not going out and touching the tree and feeling something like we do when we do maple sap gathering in the springtime. You know, it's just watching how nature works. So if we put those four pieces together, I think we come up with, as you said, a sort of circular, holistic um, conception of the many, many different aspects of the universe. And I, I was so pleased that you mentioned the sacred hoop. That's, of course, black elk, you know, the... Um, Lakota medicine man, his his famous image and his vision as a nine year old child. and I've been taking enormous inspiration from his writings recently because um, contrary to what two of his biographers explain, Black Elk did not view the sacred hoop as exclusive. He didn't view it as a circle Native Americans draw around themselves and exclude non-natives. He clearly especially when he became a Catholic while he was still a traditional Native American, he viewed this circle as as something that we we create in the space in which we live. And within that space, we are able as individuals to connect the divine, you know, Wakanaka, Wakantanka, you know, the the great mystery, the the great spirit, if you wish, in, in Lakota. We are able to make those connections that you referred to in the sculpture between the three-dimensional, four-dimensional world and the spiritual world. But, but the, the beauty of this image, again, is that it, it is not the esoteric wisdom of romanticized Indian medicine men who can access this. It's all of us who can access this, this wondrous set of connections if we only allow ourselves.
1: That's a big word, isn't it? Allow, you know, allow ourselves. And allowing means to move to a different level of access, accessing this, right? We 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 we're, we're very brain centred, you know, intellectual. Even if we're not intellectuals, we tend to process through our heads rather than our our hearts or in our bodies. And um, and and the, the the way that we learn the best, I think, in, in especially in a spiritual sense, is to to allow the body to speak to us, you know, and the body, not just our bodies, but the body of the earth, the body all around us, right? The universe itself um, and feel it intuitively. And, and we, you know, we don't trust that because we think, oh, well, that's just something I made up. Well, well, it, it's certainly not, you know, usually that's some of the most profound connections we can make. Um, and storytelling, I think is an integral part of that, right? We see that in all, religions and faith traditions um we learn more from storytelling than than somebody um you know pontificating at us about wisdom right because there's something we uh, it's something pictorial in the the narrative there's something you know that we connect with at a different level when we when we hear a story and um and i think that's profound too right that um it's it's not going through our heads so much as it's it's impacting our hearts and um I'm not saying we turn off our intellect. I mean, it's important to have that as well, right? We are whole beings, but but we do, we want to connect them. We, you know, the, the I know the altruism is the greatest journey you can make, the the greatest distances from your head to your heart, right? And um, and uh, there's a there's a truth to that, I think.
2: Well, I I think one of the the lessons that my colleagues um, have learned, my environmental colleagues who have, many of them, dedicated literally their lives now to working on the issue of climate change is that more information, more cognitive knowledge, more measurements, more reports doesn't really get us to where we need to go. Um, What does it is someone being out in the forest or even in their own garden and suddenly feeling an, in, an intimate connection with Mother Earth and wanting to change the way they live and encourage others to change the way they live. Um, we, we, we can't reason our way to solutions. That's part of the, the formula or the recipe. But as you said, if, if we don't have a change of heart, we just aren't going to get there.
1: Right. I think, you know, a, a good case, a good example is uh, Richard Attenborough, you know, um, the, the grand uh, old man now of environmentalism and done so much work, uh, you know, uh, in Britain, of course, but it's now well known, I think, throughout the world. Um, but he brings a quiet passion. You know, it's, it's always a very sensible approach. Um, he's not just, um, you know, I- emotionalism, it, but but there's a, there is a passion that he brings that inspires others, I think. And... Uh, which is exactly to the the point that that you're making, um, yeah. And and you've been involved with this Ecologia. Do you want to talk briefly about that? We're going to need to go to our first break in a couple of minutes. Just give us a thumbnail about what that. Sure. In my
2: is. my previous professional life, um, I was the co-founder of an international environmental organization, and we worked on such matters as pollution in Russia, um, helping cities in Russia that were so secret they weren't even on maps to transition from making nuclear weapons to doing something else, to closing dangerous nuclear power plants. And then we worked in China on issues such as the advancing um, Gobi Desert, you know, which practically canceled the 2008 Olympics with dust storms. So Mm -hmm. I've literally been around the block and around the world dealing with formidable problems and I felt that we were always close to solutions, but never able to get those last few steps. And that's when writing this book suddenly was the aha moment for me, that the missing part of the, of the solution, which you referred to in this diagram I have of the, you know, the circular um, medicine wheel ways of knowing, the, the missing part was that we weren't tapping into our hearts. We were depending on our intellects and the ability of our intellects to transform other people's intellects so that they would do what we need to do. It doesn't work that way. And you talk about melancholia,
1: you know, in the environmental movement, that there's this sense of sadness, deep sadness. You know, I just read recently that since 1970 right i think uh, three quarters i can't remember the exact statistics but well over a half of all the world's species you know have, have been eradicated or or diminished and um, you know it's sad when you think about that and uh, i remember the old neil young song uh, after the gold rush was where where one line that says look at mother nature on the run in the 1970s and uh, you know it, that's very prescient, you know, because uh, yeah, Mother Nature's been on the run, uh, you know, from before that. But certainly, it's it's uh, it's the speed has accelerated uh, what what's going on. So it's easy to get sad about it, right? But that doesn't really solve the, anything, you know. Me feeling down about what's happening to the world, um, we we do what we can, I guess, right? It's um, it's uh, you, you have to stay optimistic, I guess, you know, regardless.
2: Yes, um, maybe we can talk about that after the break a little more. Yeah, looks depth.
1: like we're at the break. So, folks, I'm I'm with Randy. Krik- Krik- I knew I was going to get it wrong one of these times. Randy Krikowski. There we go. Uh, his new book is called "Without Reservation: Awakening to Native American Spirituality and the Ways of Our Ancestors." Um, And we're going to go to break, listen to these messages from Unity, and we'll be right back.
0: Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.
2: Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio.
0: The voice of an awakening world. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach.
1: So welcome back to today's, to today's show on World Spirituality. I'm your host, Paul John Roach. I have with me Randy Krakowski. We're talking about his book, Without Reservation, Awakening to Native American Spirituality, the Ways of Our Ancestors, and the Ways of Holism. Because um, I think this book is relevant to any of us. You don't have to be fascinated with Native American spirituality to get a lot out of it because it covers a range of topics um, centered around this, this idea of, of breaking through uh, to a larger awareness of who we are, uh, which we like to talk about a lot on world spirituality um, and uh, the circular nature of things. So there's a holism to everything, um, which is fascinating. You have a chapter on warrior culture, and then you follow that up with uh, powwows, uh, sort of linked together somewhat. Um, You know, I've talked about this a lot on the show, and in in general, the paradigm of the warrior is such a strong one. It's certainly strong in native uh, spiritualities and native societies, um, and it's strong in America. It's strong around the world, you know, And, and... we imbue it, uh, the warrior consciousness with a lot of our virtues, right? Like bravery, resilience, um, overcoming of, of obstacles, etc. Um, and, and so, it's really hard to move away from warriors as soldiers um, or fighters um, to something a little more uh, peaceful, with, without jet- jettisoning the the, the good virtues that are involved in that right so uh, how do we do that how do we how do we move to a a different paradigm without losing the the the, something that's inherent in in humanity you know that idea of the fight of of overcoming of of, um having victory over the struggle and difficulties of the world
2: well i think you phrased the question Quite, quite wonderfully. And I, I really appreciate it. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll fast up, you know, I'm um, of the generation of the Vietnam War, and my college years were spent agonizing over that and what to do and opposing it, and uh, working with Quakers in Philadelphia and the anti-war movement. So I'm, I'm uh, predisposed to be skeptical of the next one that comes along, and many have, And the argument, which is always the same, that, you know, this is the just and right cause and we're doing this because we absolutely need to defend ourselves. So when when I went to my first powwow and expected to see something, you know, essentially and quintessentially Native American and in-marched, a bunch of veterans carrying flags from the different branches of the military at the front of the line— I was more than a little shocked. I felt like it was Veterans Day parade. And then, you know, there Uh, at the first powwow, there wasn't even uh, an Indian staff eagle banner. And my wife and I got up and and we left. And I felt profoundly alienated from the culture I was trying to connect to. So I, I went online and Googled and searched, you know, for other photos of grand entries. And I found not all of them do this. And I found a wonderful story about someone who was at a powwow and this elderly man sort of appeared out of nowhere and said, I don't think we should have this in our powwows. Why are we honoring the white man's army that you know, a generation ago you know, massacred us? And I was so relieved to know that there is a dissenting opinion within our own culture. And as I dug more deeply, I found inklings of an ambivalence toward being a warrior. The Black Elk, whom I mentioned, um, who admits to having killed um, a soldier in his youth, um, mentions that when warriors came back, they they put themselves in blackface, it meant something different than it does now, and they did it in mourning for what they had just done. They had taken human lives, they recognized that it, it was, on the one hand, bravery, on the other hand, an awful thing to have to do. So in my book, um, I, I use the image of um, a distant cousin, the famous Jim Thorpe, maybe the world's greatest athlete, who played on the Carlisle Indian School football team. And in their most glorious moment in 1912, this little Indian school played West Point, and it was portrayed in the New York Times as, you know, the, 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 the Yankee soldiers and the Indians once again going to fight it out, well, the Indians won, <laughs> because it wasn't a technologically loaded um, situation where, you know, having steel weapons and muskets was an advantage. It was just the epitome of what you referred to as the best in what we think of as warriors, self-sacrifice, courage, physical strength. And in that level playing field with the army, the Indians won. And yeah. ironically, they carried their their uh, halfback off the field, dazed and unconscious. His name was Dwight Eisenhower. So, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lesson here, there's a story within this story about the ability to be a warrior, to be a courageous person, and do it in a situation where there are rules about how we work out our conflicts without disintegrating into mutual destruction.
1: Right. right. Very right. apropos right now as we speak. Um, yeah, you know, but I think I think the uh, the Indians did a, a a good service for Dwight Eisenhower, right? Because everybody needs a, a, a this devastating defeat in your life, it's to, to, in order to understand and have empathy for, you know, and be a better soldier. So perhaps, you know, as a result of that, he learned a number of things, and that made him more effective when, when he became supreme commander, you know, of the Allied forces in World War II. So. Um, I see that as a, as a, you know, a blessing in disguise, if you like, uh, but it doesn't take away from your, your point There, um, yeah, I've been to several, uh, powwows in, in Oklahoma and, um, I think nearly all of them start, start with the, with that grand entry of the, of the flag and the, the MIAs and whatnot. There, and there is a strong warrior, um, the service culture in, in in Native Americans, right? There, many of them have served uh, with distinction um, in in the in the U.S. armed forces, um, which is you know somewhat ironic. But on the other hand, you know they are Americans, and so they're part of that um, th- that push in that direction. But I've also, you know, then afterwards seen some very beautiful um, and participated in some very beautiful dancing and and ritual um you know that that was very profound for me and and um it 's always a little difficult to be there because you feel you know am I what am I you know am I observing this from you know uh i don 't know it, you know am I really welcome let 's put it like that uh, but but it it was fine it seemed okay and we we were there in a spiritual context as we were part of our church group was there. And, um, and and so that made it a little easier, I think, to integrate. But um, yeah, it, it again, it was very beautifully um, presenting that connection. You know, again, dancing the rhythm of the drums, whatnot, again, gets us out of our heads, right, in, into this place where we're viscerally involved in, in the connection to to a harmony of of something, and and that's always very beautiful, I think.
2: Native Americans dance in celebration, they also dance to heal. And I'm sure at the, the dancing that you saw, one of the um, featured dances is what's called the jingle dance and it's usually women wearing dresses with all kinds of little bells. Mm-hmm. Well, I recently came across the origin after I wrote my book, the origin of the jingle dance. It is in the wake of the 1918 Spanish flu and Native Americans had the belief that this flu was something spread through the air and something, you know, of evil spirits who didn't like noise. So they took old lids from tin cans and bent them around and made clangy bells and invented the jingle dance, both as an affirmation of the culture and its continuity, but also as a kind of pushback and statement of, resilience and I I think I think that's the theme that we're all searching for right now as we try to heal in our own ways sometimes awkwardly and we try to heal nature we're trying to figure out ways of carrying on and we're trying to decide what it is we need to hold on to and what it is we need to let go and when we're isolated at home appreciating social interaction we're we're asking the most fundamental questions about what it means to be human, what it means to be connected, and what it means to be centered.
1: Um many, so many people have talked about the, the, you know COVID nineteen being uh, and all that we have to do to you know lockdown whatever as being an opportunity to reset, to rethink, you know, to shift up perceptions around things and. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but because many people are just so eager to get back, you know, to, the, to what they call their, their regular life and not looking, as, looking at it, there's an opportunity for shift. But, um, and, and then when I get on the road, you know, during COVID, um, especially on the freeway, I'm blown away by everybody rushing, you know, where are they all going? <laughs> there's, there's a craziness afoot uh, in our nation right now and maybe around the world. Um, but that, that often, uh, comes before some kind of shift, you know, that there's, there's always a retrenching of, uh, positions right before something new comes, comes up uh, around. So I'm optimistic that, uh, we can maybe learn a few different things as a result of this.
2: Well, it, 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 it may not be this wave of pandemic that teaches us the lesson, um, Your listeners may have forgotten or be unaware of the fact that 90% of the indigenous people in this half of the world were killed in the first decades of contact with Europeans, not by the superior military technology the Europeans brought, but by the smallpox, the measles, and the other diseases. And it continued in wave after wave after wave for centuries, including down to the 19th, late 19th, early 20th century with the Spanish flu. And now, where is COVID hitting hardest? On the Navajo reservation. It's once again hitting. Mm. So what, what I think Native Americans have learned is that sometimes human survival isn't a pretty picture Sometimes many of us don't make it, and sometimes it's illusory to think that we can be the masters of the universe and turn back the tide of disease. I think that's one of the lessons of COVID. This brainless, tiny little virus that we can only see under a microscope is outwitting the best science we have and billions and trillions of dollars being thrown at the solution and few people are saying when covid goes you know is it going to be the end of disease is it going to be the end of pandemics or is there another one coming what what really is the lesson is it the lesson get your vaccination when it comes or is it back up and understand why these diseases keep crossing over from the crowded nature boundary that, you know, we are endangering ourselves by constantly putting wild animals into markets around the world and, you know, having swine flu and bird flu and now COVID um, viruses cross over. You know, we, 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 we really haven't even begun to scratch the surface here, but my, my ancestors have. We've had 500 years to think about it and to understand resilience and survival. Cushy, spoiled, (laughs) impatient Native American middle-class people want solutions now. We want the vaccination now. We want to get back to the bar now. That's not the way life is going to go on in the future. It's going to slow down and be something entirely different, much more like my ancestors have lived.
1: That will be interesting, um, and I, I, I would like it myself, but I'm not sure that the bulk of people around the, the world are going to buy into that. But, but yeah, it speaks to an imbalance, uh, you know, a systemic imbalance in in, in our world. and For Mother Earth, I think, you know, that we, we have these strange occurrences and the climate changes and weather patterns and et cetera, et cetera. I think it's all it's all connected. If we, if we understand that everything is, there's one, right. It's a connect, connected whole, then yes. Um, and we are part of that. We, we, you know, we can be part of the, uh, of the solution. Um, the old paradigm, you know, you, you talk about in the book is, uh, you know, the classic idea that a is a right. That you, what you see is what you get, you know, that kind of idea. Uh, self so empiricism, um, uh, rationality, et cetera. Um, but, you know, in in the world of spirit, A is not always A, right? I, I love Thich Nhat Hanh said, said, um, as long as you acknowledge the non-rose elements in a rose, it is then you can guarantee that it's a rose. And it, it sounds like a conundrum, but uh, what he's saying, the labels that we use, right, the, it, are not really the thing itself. The thing itself is mysterious and beyond us. And th- that means everything that we touch or are, you, you know, is is not what we think it is, right? It's beyond the story we tell about it. Um, and it's a both and world. So you, you can say, well, I, you know, I have a body, I have a mind, whatever, but I am not that, you know. I, I am beyond that. So it's, it, to me, that's, that's a very healthy way of looking at things because otherwise everything becomes a commodity, right? And, and we wanna move beyond commodification where, where everything can be bought and sold um you know and that's a native american truism isn't it you know the, they couldn't understand this idea of buying and selling land for instance because how how can you buy and sell mother earth right it's 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 a, it's a contradiction in terms and yet our whole society is based on that basically on on being able to buy it and sell pretty much anything you want
2: well i i think the the complexity of the solutions that what you just articulated you know is so overwhelming that i don't i don't believe we're going to quickly ar- arrive at a moment of aha and wisdom and do an about face and pull ourselves out of the tailspin unlike some of my colleagues i do not welcome um, the notion of the anthropocene and massive extinction i have Numerous colleagues who basically say, oh, it's well-deserved punishment for humanity, and we, we really ought to all perish. I, I, I do not buy that in the least, but some, somewhere between resignation and arrogance, you know, lies the large, large expanse of humility, which is one of the virtues that all Native American people affirm, and Part of humility is understanding that the the conundrums of you as you've been saying and the mysteries to a great degree will forever remain beyond our ability to grasp. So in our incomplete knowledge, we have to find ways of coping. We have to understand that we are not always in control and we need to plan for our own ignorance. We need to plan for the unexpected, the black swans, um, as they're now called, the COVIDs, um, the climate change, and the terrorist attack. You know, these are parts of human existence. Dear God, Native Americans know too well. But in the midst of such uncertainty, we find ways of being resilient and persevering. You know my my colleagues are worried about the impact of climate change and I keep telling them we survived it. Native Americans survived it. My people grew up on the Chicago waterfront. Chicago is a Potawatomi word for wild onions. And they were marched at gunpoint off of their land into the prairies of Kansas. And in the same generation marched off the prairies into the deserts of Oklahoma. Now that is climate change more rapidly than humanity will experience it. Many of us perished. It's not a pretty picture. Climate change is not going to be a pretty picture, but it is not the end of Mother Earth. It is not the end of humanity. The question we have to ask is what are we going to salvage? What are we going to hold on to? And when are we going to begin that work of healing with Mother Nature? Not saying, bye-bye, sorry you died. Right. right.
1: Heavy stuff. Um, and so for the last five minutes of this show, let's, let's go ahead and lighten up. <laughs> I don't want to bum <laughs> all our listeners out with all these heavy topics. So tell me, uh, what's fun about living in Vermont? You know, you live in a very beautiful part of America, obviously like heavily forested and beautiful wetlands and whatnot. So what what's what's it like?
2: Well, Ver- Vermont, of course, is, you know, the picture postcard of, you know, Christmas with the snow. Um, right. And, you know, tourists come here and now people are fleeing the cities to come here. For me, you know... You know, it it is a celebration daily, and my wife and I and our extended family literally take the time to daily celebrate. So today, months after normally, you know, we don't we have frost, I went out and I picked some raspberries. I'm picking tomatoes in the garden. And I, I do it not harvesting the stuff, but with an attitude of gratitude for what Mother Earth Is giving. And if we take the time to do that in storytelling time, in slow time, then we begin to feel Mother Earth nurturing us. And I I really think that is the positive message to take away from this discussion and my awakening, which is we can lament the bad news, or we can celebrate the feeling that you get of being taken care of and cradled by Mother Earth if you only take the time to observe it, to feel it. So when, when I sleep on the screened-in porch, as I do at night, I'm often awakened by owls. We call them cuckoo-o-cuckoo oh, because it makes the sound. Cuckoo-o-cuckoo. Oh, and at first I was a passive participant, uh, just a listener. And then one night I decided to go out and listen to the owl, And then speak to the owl so i made the sound back cuckoo ocoo and i'll be darned cuckoo ocoo answered me and not only did cuckoo ocoo answer me owls came from all around in other directions and started speaking with me and this was the most bitter cold white snowy full moonlit night in vermont and i I, I thought for a moment, Randy, you know, you're, 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 you're hallucinating. This is just a coincidence. <laughs> don't, don't let this run away with you. So I looked up at the sky and the clouds parted a little bit and I said, okay, you know, sh- show me something that isn't a natural phenomena. You know, owls out on a moonlit night. Show me something that convinces me this is miraculous. And a shooting star appeared in the opening in the sky. You know, the, the, the longest shooting star I've ever seen. Not one of those little blips like a dash, but a long, scrawling piece of handwriting uh, like that. Mm-hmm. My grandfather. And that's when I realized there is something out there, something waiting, something reaching out, wanting to heal with us, telling us we are not alone. Let's be partners in the process of healing.
1: Beautiful, put. lovely. And as part of my studies uh, as a master naturalist, um, came across the fact that in, in our Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, which is one of the largest conurbations now in the States with over 6 million people, there's actually 9,800 other species living in the metroplex. And uh, and that's to date. They keep, they keep counting and adding more, but that's a lot of creatures that we, we spend time with, you know, for plants, animals, microbes, whatever. Um, and I mean, that speaks to what you just said, you know, that, that we're, we're not, we're not just human beings in a, in a built environment. We, we share it with this multiplicity of, of messengers from mother nature, you know, who are willing to speak to us in in various ways, if we, if we are willing to look um, and, and that's that's deeply encouraging for me. And, I think it's an inspiration to to listen to our listeners, right? That wherever you are, there's more going on than meets the eye, you know. And if you pay attention, if you're open to the the visionary, or just simply observing, you you will um, you will find amazing things, wonders beyond wonders. Um, I'm going to tell people about the next week's show, and then. Five words of wisdom from Randy at the end of that. Okay, so we think it about five <laughs> words of wisdom. So next week, uh, neurosurgeon and survivor of a dramatic near death experience, Eben Alexander joins me, and he's going to talk about his experience and discuss his books on the subject of um, moving beyond uh, the limits of three dimensional reality into this greater awareness. Uh, notably, his book *Proof of Heaven*. Uh, so, join me, in, and then that should be an interesting show. But right now, five words of wisdom from Randy Kritkowski.
2: So, it would be: embrace and heal with nature.
1: All right, take that to heart, folks. Embrace and heal with nature, which is all around us. Even if we live in a little apartment, uh, there's there's living things with us and around us. Maybe we just got a, a little pot of, of uh, flowers or something growing or a pet or, or just the sound of the bees or the flies around, whatever, there's something. And um, to become uh, aware of that and embrace it. Yeah, embrace the wisdom and the love actually within it, because it will bring us to a, a place of deep peace and harmony. So it's been a joy to, to have Randy on the show today get his book. Uh, Randy, if people want to find out more, do you have a website?
2: Yes, I have an author website. It's my name, randykutkowski.com. All right. Excellent. And thanks
1: for listening, folks.